Welcome to the Like Phil Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with a very interesting guy, uh, Andrew McClement. Uh, he is a, you know, there's been a lot of listeners that have been asking me, you know, I, you always have these really bookish types on. Uh, why don't you get somebody who's uh, done a lot of action in the world, a lot of crazy stuff? Well, you're you're going to get that today. I mean, this uh, this guy has done everything from fighting fires in northern Canada to working on oiled rigs in the North Sea to traveling around by himself all over Central and South America to working in gold mines uh, to g- <laughs> collecting eggs of saltwater crocodiles. I'm not joking. Uh, all sorts of... This guy's had an amazing, interesting life. Uh, but before we get to the interview, uh, this episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by our sponsors. If you are not a Patreon supporter, uh, you should become one. Even if you can only afford a a dollar or two a month, it's very, very helpful. Uh, It costs uh, a lot to produce these podcasts and we could use your support. We need your support. Uh, This episode is also brought to you by our sponsors. Uh, The podcast is brought to you by Seb Furtado Photography. Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers online courses for people at any skill level from just completely beginning to advanced. I've seen what he's done. He can take people from a very low skill level and bring them up. Uh, very, very quickly. It's quite quite amazing, actually. Today's episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Good Mix Foods is a, a seed and nut uh, blend. It's, it's very, it's like a superfood. It's really, really good for gut health, which is a big, big thing these days. Uh, a lot of people have irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, and so there's you know, various ways to, to fix this, well, um, this stuff is excellent for that, for sort of correcting, keeping your guts very healthy, and actually it's recommended for people that are suffering from IBS. They've got a certification for that. This episode is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar. If you live in Montreal, you know that Elsa's is a fantastic place, wonderful environment, great place to eat and drink, wonderful atmosphere. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Café Lalie, Galerie des Artistes, Galerie d'Art, which is a family-owned fine art gallery slash cafe in an amazing space. It's got great coffee, fine art. It's in uh, Montreal's St. Henry neighborhood. Uh, so check that out. And make sure um, if you go to Elsa's or to Café Lalie, uh, tell them that we sent you. And if you are buying good mix... If you put in Likeville 15, you can get a 15% discount on your order. All right. Without further ado, I give you Andrew McClymont. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. All right. Fair citizens of Likeville, you have asked me. Uh, to get you somebody who's not another bookish journalist or academic. 
<laughs> uh, you said you wanted a little bit of variation on the kind of people that we have as guests. Well, I have got a live one for you today. Uh, <laughs> I'm here today with uh, in studio with Andrew McClymont, uh, who has had an unbelievably interesting life. I can't believe he's four years younger than me and he's done all of these things. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's yeah. great to be here. Yeah. So just, uh, you know, just to give you an idea uh, or to our listeners of the kind of stuff that Andrew's done, uh, when you were playing Pac-Man and Space Invaders, uh, he was uh, castrating cattle <laughs> on, a, on a farm in the middle of Queensland, right? In Australia, that's where you grew up? Northern Australia, yeah. Okay, and he's uh, he has gone and collected crocodile eggs from saltwater crocodiles, which are the uh, largest reptiles on planet Earth, and they are. I mean, they make alligators look like like lizards in a pet store. I mean, they are absolutely massive. Uh, you've been a firefighter. You've worked on oil rigs. You've uh, you've done so much amazing. You've you fly helicopters. So basically, uh, I think you're probably the most manly person I know. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> anyway, so how did you do all of these crazy things? I mean, how did this happen? Well, one thing leads to another. You know, I grew up in outback Australia. My mum and dad had a small cattle and sheep property. Then I went to school and got an apprenticeship, started building houses, did that for four years, then decided I wanted to drive earth moving machinery. So I went to work on larger cattle stations where they have machinery and that was great and then i saw the helicopters in action helicopters are used for herding cattle in northern australia so i thought that looks like a good idea uh, unfortunately it's really expensive to get a helicopter license so it took me a long time to save the money for the tuition yeah so that's what my, my my son wanted to learn how to fly planes and when we saw the cost of it uh, it's, it was really really high and so he went into the air cadets where the military basically trains him to do it you know but uh, he just got his license uh, about a month ago so but but it's like 35 grand to get a helicopter license it, right i mean it was back then so okay. i obviously ha had to have a career change in order to save the money so i went to the working <laughs> at the mines that was the best uh, blue collar work i could find at the time what kind of mines like gold mines or uh, like lead and copper and silver in outback queensland underground okay it was about a kilometer under the ground and then i heard about the offshore drilling rigs and I'd never seen one in Australia and I didn't know anyone who worked on them and they're pretty hard to get work on. But I'd heard there was a lot in Scotland in the UK. So I went over to Scotland and uh, started working on them there. That's where I started saving for the helicopter license. And then drilling turned out to be quite a good career. You know, after after about eight years, I thought, well, it's time to get the helicopter license. And then I went to do that. Yeah. Well, when you're drilling, I mean, when you're out on an oil rig, is it... I mean, what, what's that like? Because it seems like it's a, a small town in the middle of nowhere that's almost all dudes. And like, what is that like? What is the culture like in a on an oil rig? Well, it's not everyone's cup of tea. You know, you've got 200 people living out there, mostly guys. There's always a handful of girls. It's kind of like a jail, really, where you're working, <laughs> but you're well paid at the same time. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and it's, but it's, uh, I mean... You liked it, right? It wasn't like the end of the world. No, it's an awesome career for, uh, you know, someone who's got a technical mindset. The drillings, there's a lot of interesting stuff goes on there. It's kind of like science, the engineering that goes into it. It's interesting stuff. Yeah. So what is it like to collect uh, crocodile eggs? That has got to be the one of the weirdest things I've ever heard of. Oh, by the way, just for any of our listeners who are weird about this, uh, the saltwater crocodile is... 
uh, not in any way endangered. They are doing fantastically well. There's tons of them. So, you know, whatever. Uh, so what's it like to collect uh, saltwater crocodile eggs? Yeah, that's good fun. Uh, I mean, the girls like handbags, crocodile skin handbags. Those skins have got to come from somewhere. And if you've seen the Hermes or Louis Vuitton handbags, all those skins come from Darwin in northern Australia. So the crocodiles, uh, you know, you've got to go and get the eggs from Cap from the wild and then they take them to the farm to incubate them and hatch them then they grow them in captivity for about two years they're big enough to skin and produce a handbag out of okay so i mean do you don't the don't the female crocodiles guard the the nest to some extent i mean i they i mean i'm not very familiar with saltwater crocodiles but i do know quite a bit about american alligators and, and caimans from south america and they the females guard the the nest very much. They do. They're like humans, you know. Some mothers are better than others. Some <laughs> some are kind of scared off by your presence. So you, uh, you sort of you, you sort of steal from the bad moms, or like. Well, you you can get them all. Even even the best moms that really are protective of their offspring, you can, uh, you know, you can coax them off their nest and and collect their eggs. How do you coax? It, an animal that's 20 feet long off of its like with, with a stick <laughs> with a stick yeah that's it yeah you, you you hit them on the nose with a stick and they're, they're kind of sensitive there and they'll swim away you gotta you gotta be careful you gotta keep your eye out because they will come back in a enraged state yeah well i mean i saw if it wasn't for all the photographic evidence and video evidence i mean somebody might think that your life was the life of an action movie star or like a like a james bond movie or something like that. but i mean i saw that one that one uh, video of collecting the crocodile eggs and that that scary part where the the crocodile comes out of the water and runs on the land like towards the people that's absolutely insane well that's actually good when they're on land you know you can see them the really scary part is when you're surrounded by water they can get really close to you and you, you really don't have any warning of the danger yeah so in the middle of the in queensland where you grew up there must have been like what kind of wildlife did you see growing up there besides just the cows that you were oh, sort que- of raising queensland there's a lot of kangaroos and wild pigs the wild pigs pigs yeah boars wow kangaroos emus pigs a lot of bird life yeah isn't Lizards. there like some bird up there i don't know if it's in us i think it's in australia that it's it's like the second largest bird in the world. It's not it's it's not as big as the ostrich, but it's like number 2 and they apparently are very dangerous. Uh right up in northern Queensland and Papua New Guinea there's a bird called the I can't quite remember it. It's yeah, it's a big bird and they're dangerous. They they can kick you. They got these big toenails. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the reason cuz I I was reading um there's a Neil Stevenson, the science fiction writer and sort of they call him uh, a hard science fiction, but he has this amazing book uh, novel called Cryptonomicon. And there's this scene in Cryptonomicon where it's uh, this Japanese army during during World War II, and they have like they're in Papua New Guinea, and at one point they're walking through the forest, and this Japanese soldier comes up on, and this big bird is standing in front of him, and he starts laughing at this like giant bird standing there and like squawking at him. And the thing kicks him in the chest, and he dies. It's called a cassowary. Ah, that's it. That's <laughs> yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I, after I, I read this, I was very interested to know, uh, first of all, 
if this was just a product of Stevenson's imagination. So I went and looked, and sure enough, I, I did a Google search, and immediately I came to this bird that's in uh, Papua New Guinea and northern Australia. And, uh, and in fact, there were reported instances of Japanese soldiers during the occupation that were killed by these things, right, which is absolutely wild. But apparently in it's a, a problem in Australia because there's some national parks and people feed them. Yeah, and then they get used to it. It's a they're in an isolated rainforest called the Daintree Rainforest, so that they're not really in a large area of Australia, but there are a lot of tourists there yet. Yeah, that's just absolutely wild. What about like where there are lots of poisonous snakes and things like that where you grew up? Or yeah, yeah, you got to watch out for snakes. Like what kinds of what kinds of snakes were there? It's king, all kinds of brown snakes, death adders, red belly black snakes. It's just wild. Yeah, apparently Australia has the highest concentration of poisonous snakes uh, in the world it's uh yeah i was reading about that just a little while ago because i'm kind of a, a wannabe herpetologist I, I love snakes and lizards and all that stuff so and apparently the reason is that when snakes came to australia they uh, you know way 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 back they came from sea snakes and sea snakes are are a member of the cobra family and so all the land snakes that you have on Australia, their ancestors were aquatic sea snakes. Okay. And so that apparently that's why there's such a you know, high percentage of really poisonous ones, right? So what do you think you have have learned from all of these these kind of crazy experiences you've had, all these different things that you've done in your life? Well, I haven't had a set career, you know, I've just followed the followed the path and uh, ended up where it's taken me. You know, having fun, looking at what to do, choose the interesting path, the most fun, as, as long as you can make a living doing it. Yeah. Well, what was it like being uh, firefighting in northern Canada? What was that? Uh... Well, that was in the helicopters as well. You know, we'd go and pick up the firefighters, load them into the helicopter and take them out to the wildfire, then un land at the fire, unload the firefighters, and then I'd go and pick up bucketfuls of water that the buckets hang underneath the helicopter so you find a beaver dam. Beavers are great for providing the water source. <laughs> and then uh, the firefighters on the ground, they've got their radios. They can talk to you and ask you where to come and drop the water. Isn't that, I mean, on the list of sort of most dangerous, I was recently, because I, I had a, a roundtable discussion about kind of police brutality and all these various different things like that. And one of the things that cops very often say uh, is, you know, this is a really, really dangerous job. We do a dangerous job, and so you have to have, like, more respect. And so I, I looked at a list of most dangerous jobs in the world, and actually, as it turns out, uh, statistically speaking, police officer is, uh, is not one of the most dangerous jobs. It's, like, pretty low down on the list. But one thing I thought when I was looking at the list is the top ten things I was like, this is all stuff Andrew has done. <laughs> like, like everything, like uh, minor uh, oil rigs, uh, helicopter, in a like, fair number of helicopter pilots die in those firefighter situations. Well, some do. I mean, a helicopter's like a car. Most of the problems are pilot-induced, so they're well-maintained. As long as you've got a good helicopter and it's well-maintained, then any problem's going to be your own, whereas most of the time, whereas, you know, police, they're dealing with unknowns. Yeah. Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan a couple of weeks ago and he said something. I was like, I, I wrote a note to myself and I was like, I got to ask Andrew about this. So he said 
uh, Joe Rogan said, so when are we going to get flying cars, right? You know, he's like this you know, Elon Musk, this amazing inventor dude, right? So, and Elon Musk explained to him why flying cars were a bad idea and why. Uh, and he said, basically, if you want a flying car, put wheels on a helicopter. As What do you, do you think that's, that, you know, could you do something like that? Well, he's got a point. The problem with helicopters is they displace so much air so that, you know, they're not, uh, they're not conducive to congestion. They make a lot of noise and a, a lot of mess, you know. They blow things around and they're very noisy. And I don't think there's any way yet of getting around that. So flying cars, are, it's, it's up to Elon, I think, to, <laughs> to figure that one out. Well, no, he, he was saying basically that uh, flying cars would never be a good idea because uh, for a lot of the reasons you just said, he said it, it would move around so much air it would make a uh, like fucking racket it'd be really really loud you wouldn't want your neighbor to come down in a flying car it would be so loud it would you know blow things around like crazy uh his his solution is he says instead we have to you know do another one of your careers you've done mining we have to make um, tunnels in our cities and we have to have uh highways that are well low ways that go underground and do that right because he says right now our cities when it comes to moving people around we're in two dimensions but when it comes to the way the city is actually functioning it's in three dimensions so you have skyscrapers that go way up but to get to the skyscraper you can only get it by going in two dimensions so he says by going down and by building like tons of roadways under you can do like five six stacked on top of each other you can even if you wanted to uh, create a vacuum in there and like like make people go super super fast they said that would be like if we want to deal with congestion problems we should think about going down not flying cars like you have in blade runner when they're all like flying all over the place but so what are the the differences from growing up in a place like queensland to living i mean you're living now with your uh you're, you just got married congratulations by the Thank way you. it's wonderful i saw the pictures uh so what are the differences between Vermont and, and Queensland in terms of the, the culture? Yeah, there's some big cultural differences between Australia and America. Australia is quite a bit more, more laid back and casual, whereas America, you know, everyone's much more polite, uh, not as laid back at the moment. They're really kind of pessimistic in Vermont. But uh, yeah, essentially it's a similar culture, but uh, just that little bit different, you know, kind of like Canada and America. That's hilarious because I think of when I think of Vermont, I've spent a fair amount of time in Vermont. I think about Vermont people as being unbelievably chill. Yeah. So if you're saying they seem uptight to you, Australia must be you know, well, unbelievable. Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say Vermonters are uptight at all. They're, they're cool. But they're much more relaxed than uh, the average suburban American, I guess. Yeah. But nowhere near as relaxed as outback Australians. So why do they seem really pessimistic to you at the moment? Well, it's to do with Trump. You know, they don't. No one likes Trump really, or not many people. So not in Vermont. No, yeah. <laughs> there's no MAGA hats in Vermont. You've never seen. You've never seen. No. You know what I think is is crazy is that you'll see uh, MAGA hats here in Canada, and like they can't vote for him. They don't seem to realize that they they live in Canada, and apparently uh, Claire Claire Lehman runs uh, starred Quillette. She said that there you'll see MAGA hats in Australia. And apparently you can see them to sometimes in uh, the UK as well. So clearly, you know, whatever he represents 
it's tapping into it's tapping into something right i mean there's uh, some i don't know what it is like some sort of resentment I mean, there's this book that i'm i'm just i've been reading for the last last couple of days i had a cold and i was at home just like reading this book but it's by francis fukuyama and it's uh it's called identity and it's all about kind of like the uh, resentment and like what a powerful force resentment is in the world right now and he says that basically you can make sense of everything from uh, the arab spring to black lives matter to make a great you know, maga hashtag maga to uh, hashtag me too all these movements make sense when you think about them as movements of people who feel uh, humiliated people who feel like they're not getting respect like they're not getting dignity and they're pissed and so it's a it's a movement of resentment right now what i found interesting i wrote that you know i was writing this in my, my notes when i was reading this is like if you go all the way back to like ancient greece when in plato's republic when he's talking about the training of the guardians of the republic one of the things that they say very, very clearly is they say, you have to make sure that the guardians of the public don't just do book learning. They can't just do theoretical like studying and stuff like that. They have to do a lot of physical education, a lot of like working out, a lot of like training and stuff like that. And they say that because if you don't do that, if you don't uh, do a lot of physical stuff, you will be very prone to resentment. You'll be very prone to being like petty, to holding on to like grievances for a long time. You're like, oh, fuck around, whatever. And this is just profoundly, I think, very interesting psychological insight. And it does seem to accord with what I've seen in my life so far. That the times that I've been in jobs, you know, when I was younger and stuff like that, where it was very physical work, people hit each other like crazy. People can get into arguments and then they just like shrug it off. Yeah, no one takes it seriously. Yeah, they shrug it off. Whereas, you know, in an academic environment where I, I work now, people can have like a an interaction where they feel like they got dissed, like somebody like disrespected them. And they're holding on to that shit for years. Like they're still angry. And you talk to them about it and they're like, yeah, I can't stand her. Like, and Why? Well, at that time at the departmental meeting, she was so dismissive of what I said. I can't believe. And it's like something that happened like four years ago. And they're still, still upset. So I think there's something, there's something to that. I mean, what, what do you think? What is it about doing physical jobs do you think that like makes people more, I don't know, like less inclined to hold on to resentments? I don't know. It's it's kind of insane. You know, when we were kids, we were told sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And, you know, what people say about you is, is none of your business, you know. But people take it to heart. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Do you think it has something to do with the relative the relative danger of whatever the job it is that you're doing? Because that's, that's one... It's always seemed to me that if if what you're doing actually it you're dealing with a certain amount of risk real actual risk like you can lose like tons of money you can lose like all of your business you can i don't know, get eaten by a crocodile you can uh you know make a mistake with some machinery and have your arm ripped off on an oil rig or something like that that if if there's real risk then i think my my sense is that it means that the people who are in that situation they recognize 
this person's not my enemy. Well, you, the you, risk is the enemy. You prioritize your problems, you know, and if you're going to lose your arm, lose a finger, lose your head or your money, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's a disaster. And the small things don't bother you as much. Every, yeah. every, it puts everything into perspective. Yeah, I was watching uh, Ken Burns. His new documentary is all on the Vietnam War. And it's really, I mean, it's a fantastic document. Many parts to it. It's very, very good. It's addictive. Like, you cannot stop watching this thing. But he has all these interviews with uh, these Vietnam vets. And they talk about how, you know, they, when they got there, a lot of them were, you know, you have, like, these good old boys from, like, the South. They're, like, total, like, racist, like, you know, rednecks from, like, you know, rural Alabama. And he said, but once you're in that situation where it's so intense and it's such a pressure cooker and you're, you all become friends. It's all about and survival. You, yeah, yeah. You rely on each other because you recognize uh, you have to, right? You have to rely on each other. And so there's a recognition of you know, this is the kind of the, uh, the other, right? The real danger, right? Well, I guess if you, if you're working in an office or in academia, there's no real threat. So the biggest, you know, you're, the small threats become your biggest threats, you know, whereas if you're in physical danger, then you're focusing on that. that's a real danger and the, the small problems just kind of disappear. Yeah. Well, it's like we were talking about before how the huge proliferation of allergies to absolutely everything, right? The, the more that you're completely sheltered from exposure to stresses, this is, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's argument, anti-fragile. The more that you're totally sheltered from stress stressors, the more over and hypersensitive you become to any kinds of things. So if you're living in an environment like working in a in an office job under fluorescent lights, you know, going to you know board meetings run by Robert's rules, like if you're going, like you're in a very very um, safe environment, you're not exposed to very much real risk you have a, a tenured job for life it's not like being an entrepreneur where if you make a mistake you can lose everything right now you have to try and figure out what you're going to do next with your life so it's there's no real risk and so in that environment people it's like the what uh, jonathan Haidt talks about with peanut allergies right when you have a, a very sheltered environment people suddenly overreact to small things right they get they have these these crazy yeah. kind of like overreactions all the time, which is, I think, you know, I think Jonathan Hyde's absolutely right. The, uh, if you look at the, the younger gen, I mean, you're like, you're about my age. You're about four years younger than me, right? 1978. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 74. But the, uh, the youngest, the younger generation that I'm teaching, what they call them, um, I gen or Gen Z is another one of the words and sort of all the, everybody born after 1995, that generation they have record, record numbers of, of sort of emotional problems, uh, mental, mental sort of health problems. They have the highest rates of suicide of any generation on record. Uh, they're having you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression and things like that. And the argument is that it's because they've been kept in such a, an incredibly sheltered environment that now when they get into the world in any way, they're just not prepared for it, right? Well, that blows me away when you hear that 20 or 30% of students are on some kind of medication to, to deal with their anxiety or stress. 
mean, no one was when we were kids. Yeah, no, they were. I mean, Not- they they actually tried. They tried to get uh, me and my my best friend put on. Um, uh, what was it? The uh, the first one it was Adderall, was it? Not Adderall. What was the first one? Ritalin? Ritalin. They tried to get us put on uh, on the on the drugs because we were just such like troublemakers. We were always getting. In tr- we were the first kids in elementary school. We were the first kids who were not allowed to go on the grade six uh, trip. It was like a, a rite of passage. Everybody went on this like trip. It was a big camping trip. They didn't allow us to go, and they said that we would be a danger to the other kids. <laughs> but they tried to they tried to put us on all that stuff, right? And it was. Uh, I think it's one of the downsides of you know America's the, the extreme of capitalism, the the pharmaceutical industry. They want to sell pills, and they they're, they're profiting hugely by selling pills. And that that wasn't as uh, prevalent in Australia. 20 yeah. years 20 30 years well, ago apparently even now australia is is much more it, it seems to be much more relaxed than a lot of other sort of anglo-american countries they they seem to have missed a lot of the 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 craziness i mean but but there is that situation uh you know they talked about like in northern australia where they've got like these these camps or something like that i mean like what, what is that you heard about that they like these refugee camps and yeah, that's, yeah, that's not a good situation. That the people come to Australia as refugees, they go to Indonesia and they, you know, they hire people to take them to Australia on boats, and they don't, you know, they get apprehended by the Australian Coast Guard or Navy, and you know, because they're perceived to be committing a crime, trying to come to Australia illegally, they take them to the detention centres, and I, I think. I think there's not many people left being held there now, but it's a real sticking point in Australia. Yeah, I heard it was just like a like national embarrassment. Like my, because my brother's living in Sydney right now, and he said it was horrible, and all these people were like, "We had no idea this was happening." And you know, it's a. Have you spent a fair amount of time in Indonesia? Uh, not at. I've been to Bali. You know, every Australian's been to Bali, but I haven't <laughs> haven't spent a lot of time. I've been to East Timor and Bali, and a few, you know, Singapore. Vietnam. Yeah, because uh, I, I I spent a little bit of time in Indonesia when I was younger. I mean, in a, a summer, and I went there a couple of times. But I I found it. I mean, this would have been uh, sort of nineteen mid mid nineteen nineties. But it was um, nineteen ninety four, I think nineteen ninety three, nineteen ninety four. But I remember it was it was like nothing I had ever seen up until that point in my life. It was it just seemed like a a lawless it looked like something out of mad max like the mad max movies like just wild it's the wild west compared to australia you know when it's only a, an hour's flight it's that close yeah from from darwin to east timor is a 45 minute flight unbelievable well i saw the first time i ever saw a dead body like rather than a dead body like at a funeral or uh, just like an actual dead body as if it was like roadkill was in Ind- indonesia and we were driving along and we stopped uh, because a couple people had to, like, uh, take a piss or something like that. So we stopped on the road. And, you know, first of all, traveling around there, we were uh, a bunch of us, a bunch of Canadians. We were inside um, a, a bullet, bulletproof vehicle, like kind of like a sort of like a van type thing. And we had we had like uh, like a security 
guard with us because we were there on i'm not going to explain the whole thing but we were there it was like a canadian government thing and so they they picked these you know these kids from all different every province and territory in canada and we were there to kind of study their economy and things like that and then we went to indonesia to korea and singapore and kind of travel in malaysia a little bit too but it was um yeah we stopped and so i went out and they have like these massive uh, really, really big ditches on the side of each road because they get such crazy rainfall, and so you need to have a place for all the water to go. And there was a, a dead body just, like, at the bottom of the ditch as if it was, like, roadkill. And they uh, they said, yeah, well, you know, there's lots of people that get killed by, you know, by various things. Could have got hit by a car. Could be the government. Could be, you know. And then another place we went to... I there had been some sort of a chemical spill. I think it was like a Phillips plant that they said uh, there had been like some sort of chemical spill on this land or you know, I really don't know what it was, but imagine you're just like driving along and it's like jungle, 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 unbelievably green, super amazing. And then suddenly you get to this patch and the ground looks like the surface of the moon. <laughs> it was just this kind of gray, beige color nothing living like absolutely no green thing it was like in you know in tolkien like when they yeah. like you know they, they they just all completely gone and the the guy said yeah well there was like uh, an accident here they they spread something and so nothing was living there it just seemed like exactly like say like wild west yeah like, the the environmental protection laws and the workplace workplace health and safety laws are not not quite up to scratch there like they are in australia or canada yeah so do you imagine like you're gonna you're gonna have kids and stuff like that would you want to raise them in uh the united states in canada or in australia probably australia or even east timor's cool uh east timor really uh, I mean, aren't they having like some sort of weren't they having some big civil war there no it's it's peaceful right now you know they've got their independence from indonesia they did have a a civil kind of a civil war in uh, 1999 indonesia occupied east timor for 25 years and then in 1999 they had a referendum timorese voted for independence the indonesians weren't happy about that so they kind of destroyed the place until australia and the un came in and uh, chased the indonesians out and then it's you know the country's getting it's rebuilding now they've had um peace more or less for 20 years almost wow so what is it? What is it like in East Timor? I, I just this is like the, another planet for me trying to imagine what it's like there. It's it's much like Indonesia, but it's a it was a Portuguese colony, so there's a lot of Portuguese influence, and you know you got a lot of Australians there because it's so close. But it's very underdeveloped, hmm. a lot of poverty, and you know still a lot of malnutrition and hunger outside of the capital. Wow. So I mean, now you're now you you've done all these different like amazing careers, and now you're an entrepreneur and you have uh, you have a business. How did you get into this? How did you get into what you're doing now? Well, Good Mix, uh, you know, I met my wife in East Timor, and then she got this scholarship to come study in America, and I thought, well, that's a pretty cool thing for her to do for Timorese lady to get a full scholarship to a U.S. college, and I'm thinking, what can I do in America? And uh, my sister, she's a naturopath in Australia. So I'd seen how good Good Mix was in Australia, the, the amazing results it was getting on people there. It's life-changing. And I'm thinking, uh, well, America is the home of capitalism. I might as well go and 
start a small business and join the party, you know. So here I am selling good mix in America. And how's 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 that going? I mean, you're in you're in probably one of the best places in the United States to do that. Vermont is like the most hippie kind of granola. One of the most in the, the whole place, right? Yeah, Vermont people are really receptive to, to health and well-being in general. One downside is there's not a ton of people there, you know, so it's, <laughs> no, it's not like New York or Los Angeles where you got millions of people. There's about 600,000 in Vermont, but, but it's good. Small? I didn't realize it was that small. That's yeah, amazing. It's, it's small, but it's yeah, it's cool, and I'm surviving, growing slowly but surely. People, okay. are, people are, you know, realizing the benefits of good mix. Yeah. So what is it? I mean, what uh, what makes it what makes it so healthy? I mean, I, I've been taking it for for a long time and having it for breakfast. But like, what is what makes it so interesting? Well, the, the key is is 11 ingredients. So it's a really wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You know, even, even this is only just becoming mainstream knowledge over the last couple of years. Ten years ago, if you'd try and told anyone that, they'd probably laugh at you. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it has a profound effect on people with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome in particular. And that affects about 15 to 20% of the Western world. So that's about 40 million Americans are suffering with this IBS, you know, debilitating problem. And most of them, I think about 75%, experience vast improvements if they follow something called the FODMAP diet. And Good Mix, the main product is FODMAP certified. It's a diet that was developed by researchers at the Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. So they figured out this diet that helps people with the IBS, and we got certified, and and now uh, yeah, Good Mix is helping people with IBS. Yeah, well, I, you know, I remember I had to. I think I was how old was I? I think in my early twenties. I I got really really sick at one point, and I had to take some very powerful antibiotics for. Um, for I don't know a couple of weeks, and I remember after after that, my digestion was off for uh, for like a couple of months. I just I it seemed like I would get I would get gas. I would get indigestion like practically every you know second or third meal, right? And so I went to my my doctor and I said like, what the fuck's going on? Like, and he said, well, it's because of the antibiotics. He said like, in order to, he said. We the way that we digest for the most part is we break things down into like some constituent uh, like bits, and then it goes into your guts, and then it's the gut bacteria. It's all this like huge ecosystem of stuff in your your guts that breaks things down, and then you absorb like you absorb it after they've broken it down. So if you don't have them with you, you can't properly break down your food and so you actually are just most of it just like either makes you feel sick or it just passes right through and he said when it's really bad uh, you can have people who are eating a very good diet but are malnourished because they're not absorbing any of it right so it's uh, i mean you've, you've probably heard this but one of the most one of the most common but insane cures right now for people who have really bad irritable bowel syndrome is shit implants. Have you heard about this? Yeah. The, the, <laughs> it's just insane. It is. It's nuts. In it. The FMTs, they're called fecal microbial transplants. Yeah, sure. Make a nice word for it. It's yeah. a shit implant. They like they basically take a healthy person's shit and they put a bunch of it they into your guts. They make a smoothie, blend they, it up. <laughs> 
No, <laughs> don't they actually like like yeah, inject yeah, they, it? They, they make the smoothie, blend it up, yeah. then inject it <laughs> in your ass, and that uh, you know. Yeah, gives... yeah. It basically just sort of colonizes your guts with all of the you know thousands and millions of bacteria that you need in order to function properly, right? So yeah, that's... yeah it's, it's insane, isn't it? It's, <laughs> I think for there's another problem called colitis, ulcerative colitis. Yeah. And these inflammatory bowel diseases, they they got like a ninety five percent cure rate or something from the the shit smoothie injections. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was uh, <laughs> just cracks me up. Had a friend who had a, a dog, and this dog would fart like so bad, like they just clear a room, like absolute terrible, terrible fart. And so he went to the the vet, and there's a, a vet right in this neighborhood, just on on uh, on Mount Royal Street. And she she said, well, the problem is because I've seen a bunch of dogs with this She goes, the problem is, is you're probably washing your floors with an antibacterial like soap. Right. So that's it's got some pretty strong, strong things So the dog is walking on that and then licking his paws and then it's going into his guts and killing off all sorts of beneficial bacteria uh, that he needs in order to digest food properly. And then when he when he eats, he can't digest things uh, properly, and so that's why he's having like diarrhea all the time. That's why he's like you know farting all the time. So sure enough, they were actually using like an antibacterial soap. So they stopped doing it, and the dog could, hasn't cleared a room since. Dog, dog needs some good mix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how exactly does it? How exactly does the your stuff your good mix work? Like, how does it actually help the, the gut? Well, well, because it's got so many ingredients, it's got 11 whole food ingredients. You know, there's no cheap fillers, no sweeteners, no processed powders. So what you're seeing in the bag is what you're getting. And there's a lot of seeds in there. So we moisten it. Seeds in nature have got a protective coating. They're designed to pass straight through a human or an animal in nature in order to spread. But if you moisten them before you eat them, they're actually coming to life. So the seed's releasing its nutrients and enzymes. And then that's giving... In one mouthful, you're getting a huge range of prebiotic fiber and all the all the bacteria that live in the large intestine. Each of those thrive on a different kind of fiber, whereas you know people eat bran or psyllium husk or whatever. That's only one. It's only feeding some of the bacteria. Whereas the theory is with good mix, you're feeding a ton of different bacteria. Now I'm not a scientist or a nutritionist. All mm. I know is it's good and it works. <laughs> so, and I'm selling it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, because I, I, I was trying to, I was asking some people I know about this. And I was like, well, how does this actually work? And the best explanation that I got was that they, they likened it to activated charcoal. You know, like if you take activated charcoal, um, you it's it has these, like if you have a drug overdose or something like that, they go and they'll stump, they'll uh, pump your stomach and then they'll pour down like charcoal down your, your gut, like to... And if you activated charcoal has all these crazy properties, like you, um, I can't remember the name of the scientist who discovered this, but he did a demonstration once at a scientific conference where he drank a cup full of activated uh, charcoal. And then he took like some cyanide, like some, like, like poison, like actual poison. And he drank it. And he was like something that would normally have you dropped on the ground, like in a minute. And he was completely fine. Right. Yeah. So the, the way it was explained to me was that um, the way that activated charcoal works is that if you look at it like under a microscope, it looks like 
Uh, just like a piece of like black charcoal. Do you ever have like aquarium fish when you're a kid? Oh no, you mean the charcoal? Yeah, yeah. like what they put in the filter. You know, yep. like the, the, so each one of those, if you look at it closely, it has like thousands and thousands of pores in it, and they go inside, and they're like all these twisty like caves, and so it has. Although it's this big, it has an incredible amount of surface area, right? That things can, and so all sorts of things. Are, are attracted to it and then they they go up and they get like stuck and they and they form bonds with it and so it it's like a, a sponge on a microbial level right yeah right so the argument that uh, that i was told by analogy was that apparently like the reason why your your stuff works really really well is because it's got all these different kinds of fibers of different shapes and different like kind of crazy stuff it provides a massive surface area that all sorts of um, bacteria and stuff can colonize and can, can like land on there and yeah okay. and apparently that's that's the uh, that's where the magic is somehow cool yeah right? that, that stands to reason yeah. yeah very very odd so where do you imagine taking this like in the future I mean what do you like do you want to are there any other products you want to like create that you want to make uh, your fortune in <laughs> well I'm happy just surviving you know if I can help. Uh, People suffering from IBS—that's that's awesome in itself. Today, actually, I got the first order from Whole Foods in the U.S. Oh, so that's nice. Significant uh, potential for growth there. Yeah, the Whole Foods is. I, I remember when I was living in Baltimore, my my wife and I we would go to Whole Foods all the time. But that place, people spend insane amounts of money there. Like you can go in there if you're not careful, you just get like a, a basket full of groceries and you go up and it's like a mortgage. Like you, know, you go, it's like hundreds of dollars. I mean, it's all really good stuff, you know, but it's good. Food's not cheap. Cheap food's generally not good, but you know, so many people can't afford whole foods. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, that's kind of an interesting inversion because it used to be for a, quite a bit of human history. The people that, the people that sort of had access to really fancy fatty foods, the the aristocrats and stuff like that, they had access to a lot of food that was not very good for them, and they also had access to a lot of you know vice. You know, there a lot of they could get themselves in trouble. You know, a lot, and they had access to uh, medicine, which mostly was bad, was dangerous, right? So they would die from all that stuff, and then the people that were kind of poor, they were eating like a very, very good diet. They were much more healthy, but that's completely changed. I mean, that's like totally changed. Like I've looked at pictures of my, my ancestors in, in, in England, you know, around like Manchester and stuff like that, at, that were you know, farmers and they all, I mean, this is from like, you know, a while ago, they're all like built. They're all like in incredible shape. They look amazing. And now farmers are all like really obese and they're, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, a complete mess. inversion now, right? The like poor people are really unhealthy now. It's a mess, isn't it? You know, like I'm selling, I spend my life selling food now, and you can see the stark contrast. I go into the places like Whole Foods. It's rare to see obese people in a place like Whole Foods. You know, I think the the more affluent people are, they're you know they can afford the good foods. They've been educated on how dangerous and how you know how poor and nutrition all the cheap stuff is but you know the people who are working two or three jobs to survive they don't have a lot of money to spend and foods uh, 
you know they're buying what they can but they they can't afford good stuff which is it's kind of a shame it's tragic but what can you do you know yeah i i mean there's probably things that we could do if we some if we subsidized healthy food if we had you know if we subsidized because i mean right now we have uh i, I was looking at the stats on this like the other day the if you look in north america i'm not sure if it's the same thing in in australia or but I know that in North America, Canada, the United States, um, the urban people have right now the highest life expectancy. They are the thinnest, the most fit, the healthiest people. And that's primarily because they walk a lot. They move around a lot. Then suburban people are uh, lower. And then rural people, rural people used to be like by far the healthiest people. They're the least healthy. They're the most obese they're the uh, they have the lowest life expectancy, and apparently this is because now um, on on farms and things like that. I mean, farmers used to be like huge. Now it's all machines, yep, and right? So they're not they're they're just like cyborgs that work like you know machines, right? And so this is uh, this is like an issue. And then when you when you add to that what you're talking about, how healthy food is expensive. I mean, I don't. Uh, I just I don't know where this is going to lead because it seems to me like what we're seeing now with with something like Whole Foods, this is just the beginning, right? Because there's very soon there's going to be um, there's going to be various medical procedures and technologies that can prolong life uh, a great deal. There's going to be uh, sort of various kinds of additions that you can get, whether it be like a chip in your head that gives you perfect recall and memory if you want it right like completely uh, and various things like this so the the sort of the justice issues the kind of social justice issues of health if they're not already a big deal i mean because my, my wife works a lot in what's called like food justice and so it looks at things things like i mean you're, you're probably familiar with this but it, food justice looks at you know why is it that poor neighborhoods tend to have the most expensive uh, good food. Like to get good fruits and vegetables and good meat in poor neighborhoods, you'll spend two, three times more than you would in a, a wealthy neighborhood. And you have like food deserts, what they call about like where in in poor areas, all the food for like a 50 miles around is, is, is shite. It's like yeah, crap, yeah. right? So uh, can you imagine a way that you could sort of bring in a kind of a justice element into what, rather than just selling amazing stuff to rich people? Like, Well, I think now for the first time in history, the life expectancy for the USA is going down and they've just announced the same for the UK. That's insane. Yeah. And I've seen projections. I don't know how accurate it is, but they say by the year 2040, the whole of the US budget will be consumed by healthcare. So something something drastic is going to change in the coming decades. Yeah, no, it's it's going down. And the thing is, is the the numbers don't even tell tell you the truth about how terrible things are because the number what the numbers don't show you is that it's not just that the life expectancy is starting to go down, it's that the years of peak life you might say are going down, right? So if if you were to this is a big misconception people have where they say, oh, you know, in the Middle Ages, the life expectancy was 35. That's bullshit. That, that you know, is not taking into account the fact that most people died before five of childhood illnesses. If you made it past 
the childhood illnesses, you know, even like in ancient Greece or something like that. If you made it past the childhood illnesses, you had a perfectly good chance of making it to be 70 or 80 or even 90 years old. I mean, if you just look at the the dates on a lot of like famous people in history, look at look at when they when they died. They they lived to be 85, 90 just like people now. The difference is though, these uh, these people were actually in peak activity and were not like basically bedridden and messed up for the last 20, 30 years. They had kind of peak health well into their, you know, 60s, 70s, you know, 80s, almost right to the end. And they probably worked a lot more, a lot more uh, just physical movement, whereas now most people work at a desk. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm, I get, are you familiar with the whole idea of like the blue zones? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I mean, what, that's one of the things yep. when they look at these areas in the world where people have the highest life expectancy, what they find, uh, they eat very different diets. So anybody who says there's like one magic bullet diet, no. There's, they eat different diets, but what they find is the people in these blue zones, they tend to, one common denominator is they, they move a, a great deal on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Most of them are in places that you're on an incline. So it's on a hillside or a mountainside. It's so you're going, you're not just moving around. You're moving like walking up yep. and down. Right? So it's not on planes. Um, and then also they have a, a lot of friends. Like a lot of like in these blue zones, people. C community, yeah. Yeah. They have like a real kind of uh, close community, right? But so, I mean, it's. I, you know, I don't want to push you too much on this. I mean, I know you're not, you're, you're a businessman, you're an entrepreneur, you're not a, an activist, but I just wonder, do you think there's a way that you could use what you're doing in business to kind of address some of these, like some of these issues to kind of help it? Cause it just seems that it, it there's almost an irresistible desire uh, to, if you're in business, you just, you go where the business is. Right. But you well, think there's a way that you could, kind of help it get this stuff to well i think you got to work within your capabilities you know these, these celebrities they got massive reach they can <laughs> tell people what they want and um hopefully good things whereas i don't have that so i spend my days you know selling good mix and, and talking to people about health and whatnot so you know that's all i can do is try and you know talk to people about health see them in the in the shop you know some of them are in bad shape they got their cart full of very suboptimal food <laughs> products yes so i don't know it's like smoking you know 50 80 years ago people didn't think much of smoking now it's uh you know it's all but finished in australia and canada america that's everyone knows you're probably gonna die whereas it you know did you the, ever smoke i did when i was younger yeah, yeah me too how long yep. i was never a heavy smoker but probably uh almost 20 years like oh wow yeah. Just I mean, it's about 10 kind years, of a yeah. casual, you know, at parties and that. Yeah. So it, how, how did you quit? Well, I had no real trouble quitting, you know. it's I, I just stopped doing it. Just like that? Yeah. Like I, that. yeah. I, came, I came here <laughs> and, uh, you know, starting a small business in America, it's, you got to put in a fair few hours. So cigarettes were heavily related to drinking and partying. Yeah. Starting a small business is you really cut back on that scene <laughs> doesn't fit well yeah no <laughs> no so I, I had no problem uh stopping smoking but i was like i said i was never a heavy smoker i i wasn't a chain smoking i didn't get up in the morning and have a cigarette yeah 
Well, it's it is very it's amazing that that has changed so rapidly. I mean, like that's especially here in Montreal, everybody used to smoke. It was um, even at a time when smoking was very prevalent, it was extremely prevalent here. And that's changed uh, so rapidly. So I think in terms of health, I think people people's minds can be changed. And we're going to be living longer, you know, much, much longer lives, which means people are going to have to start taking taking control of their own health, right? So what do you recommend to, because you always, you seem very, very, very healthy. I mean, what do you recommend as like a kind of a good regimen to live? Like what to eat, what to do? What do you do to stay in shape? Uh, I eat a ton of good mix for a start. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's, uh, Americans are, are renowned for, they, they don't do things by halves, you know, they go full on. So there's all these diets and you know drastic lifestyle changes are pretty hard people do them and then they often lapse back into into poorer habits because drastic changes require a lot of discipline i'd say if you can uh, start with a small step you know have start with a good breakfast eat good mix and that's it have a burger for lunch a beer at night whatever but you're doing one good thing you know and then once you got that under control that's an ingrained habit then maybe you can have a salad for lunch instead of a burger and then that's that's what I would uh, try and tell people because it's hard to change everything at once. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a that's good advice. I mean, because that's the whole idea of building in habits, right? Because I remember uh, a friend of mine who was like really into bodybuilding and really into health and stuff like that. He, I remember he said to me, he's like, you know, what what's gonna kill you isn't what you do once in a while, right? If you if you once in a while like overdo it on pretty much anything. That's probably not gonna be have a, the thing that the things that kill you are the things you do every day, you know. Like so, the things that are that become part of your routine, part of your your habit and stuff like that. Like even uh, he said, you know, even if you like smoking, for instance, because if you smoke just once in a while, and uh, that actually uh, not only is that probably not gonna have. I mean, I'm not recommending that our listeners smoke, but but uh, even if you, if, it's probably not going to have any big effect on you, right? And it might actually, I mean, Nassim Nicholas Taleb would say it might actually have a little bit of a positive effect on you because it's a challenge, right? It's like any kind of challenge. If it's once in a while, you'll have your body will have an anti-fragile response, and you might actually get get some strength from it, right? So, but it's, uh, it's okay. So you'd say just change your habits. One at a time towards better habits. I think that's more feasible than going on these crazy diets or exercise regimes, you know, because you see people do it all the time and time and time again, they fail. Yeah. Well, I see, you know, if I look at my, my friends who sort of went, who were really into health and were in amazing shape and they were going to the gym, total gym rats, stuff like that. When they got married... Um, and when they had kids and stuff like that, suddenly, and they had a job or a business, they didn't have the time to be in the gym two hours a day or something like that at all anymore. And so a lot of them went from being in completely like sick shape to being like, you know, really in bad shape. Uh, but the ones that I can see, if there's one common denominator of the people I know who've stayed in really, really good shape, even when their lives got much more busy with like kids and relationships and you know all that stuff, it's people who just had it as a regular part of their routine. It wasn't like some special thing where I go and do 
eight different you know exercises at a gym and like, like they just uh, like for instance one guy that springs to mind immediately he's a writer and he's got a, a chin-up bar that's in the doorway in his place and every time he passes by the chin-up bar he does 10 and, you know, you're walking around your house, going to the kitchen, going to the bathroom. He Every time he walks by, he does like 10 of them. And then he has like just like regular routines. Like he does a certain amount of push-ups. Uh, I can't remember what his like. But he has like it's just built into his everyday uh, routine in life. So it's not as if he has to like pencil in time for working out. Right? Just, pencil. Just, just movement in general. Yeah. Like I say, make a part of your habit rather than a. You know, not many people have got two hours to spare every day. Yeah. Well, I uh, I remember <laughs> it's kind of a crazy story, but my my first serious girlfriend when I was a teenager, um, her dad was one of the strongest guys I've ever met in my life. Like this guy was un just like, like unbelievable. But he never worked out in a gym in his life. He'd just done manual labor his whole life. He everything from picking tobacco to like where he was a mechanic at that point, but he just had his arms were so, so, so powerful, but it was all just from doing many different kinds of movements on a regular basis. And the same guy I was telling you about, the guy was really into bodybuilding. He actually, if I remember correctly, he won like, like he was like number three in the provincial competition, Quebec. I mean, he was like just a beast of a guy. Like he had like his arms were like as big as my thighs. <laughs> like he was just massive. And so one time we got uh, my, my girlfriend's dad and him to do an arm wrestle. And this little, this guy was like, you know, not very, he's probably about like five, seven, 130 pounds, <laughs> like, like little, little guy. Like, and he just could throw my friend down. Like it was nothing. Like it was like, it was like a little child. Right. And then I even like was trying to help <laughs> and he could just like like this. And this guy could like tighten bolts on the tire with his fingers, yep. you know, just, uh, but it was just from doing lots and lots of movement his whole life, every day and many different ranges of motion, like all the time. All right. So I think that's, yeah, that's a, that's a good, any other advice on how to like stay healthy for people that are going to be living up to 120? Well, I think when you when you're in the supermarket shopping, you know, look at the person in front of you. If they're a healthy-looking, fit person, look in their cart. <laughs> and if you see someone that you don't aspire to emulate, look in their cart and avoid what they've got. So we shouldn't be getting uh, buckets of chicken from KFC like Donald Trump. Not not on a regular basis. <laughs> if you don't want to look like him, or... no. All right. Well, on that wonderful note, we'll end there. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, we will see you soon. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah.